You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Karen Schrag is a lifelong environmentalist, naturalist, educator, poet, author, and overpopulation activist. She began her career as a naturalist in 1983 and as the director of the City of Richfield's Woodlake Nature Center in 1991. She's passionate about the role nature centers can make in keeping communities thriving. As a member of the advisory board of the nonprofit World Population Balance, she's become deeply alarmed by the lack of discourse surrounding the overpopulation crisis. In 2015, she published her book, Move Upstream, A Call to Solve Overpopulation. Today we started with Karen's definition of what it means to move upstream and having conversations on population and conservation issues. If you think of a river and you think of when you can cross it, like I live in Minnesota and in a beautiful, one of our 65 state parks, the first one ever established in the 1800s, Itasca State Park is where you can walk across the Mississippi River. And if you wanted to solve any problem with the Mississippi River, you'd want to start there. You'd want to make sure because it's, you can handle it. It's small. You can walk across it. By the time you get down to where I live in the Twin Cities, it's a raging river. And it's so we, we keep trying to solve the problems of the environment by You'd go, oh, come on, we're going to organize a cleanup and we're going to go and get all those tires out of the river and we're going to stack them up and we're going to go, wow, look, at we did a great job. And then the next day, there's more tires in the river. And moving upstream is you might want to go upstream and see where the tires coming from. And so it's a concept of trying to treat a problem at its source. And my website, um, is movingupstream.com. The book I wrote with Free Thought House Press in 2015 is called Moving Upstream, A Call to Solve Overpopulation, because all of the things that we're trying to do, whether it's solve the plastics problem or try to save a species, is all connected to the fact that in my father's lifetime, we've added over five and a half billion people to this planet. And each of us takes up room. And, and the, the people who would like to dance away from this issue, because there's a lot of what I like to call quicksand around it, where you could just swallow you up, is that they go, oh, well, let's talk about consumption. That's safer. But at the end of the day, we're apex predators, and apex predators take up room. We've essentially, and you've got a lot of ecologists, wonderful people on your board of directors and as members, and, and they're very steeped in ecology, and they know that the top predators need to be in the least amount for nature to work. Well, we flipped that pyramid on its head, and we're in the most amount, plus our, plus our agricultural animals. And so in that formula, we can't win. So if you want to win, if you want to gain something on this planet you have to move upstream you have to see us at the species level 
And at the species level, what I say makes sense. Downstream from that, it doesn't make sense. It can even sound harsh. But I just invite people to move upstream and see what I'm seeing. Think of it like a ladder. Think of being on the bottom rung of a ladder. Whatever you see is a truth. But as you move up the ladder, you see a greater truth. It really actually is a neat way to look at something. And when you think about something for a really long time, you sometimes are surprised to, to find there's another way to look at it, <laughs> and which is also kind of in that moving upstream sort of thing, because that's where I meet people talking about population is somewhere downstream, somewhere in that raging river part. And now I sort of can see a different way of why that energy that comes back to me sometimes as I put questions out there about, well, maybe we should just um, ethically lower our population and uh, we wouldn't have mm -hmm. to worry about all of the whatever and fill in the blank. Whatever we're talking about, just fill in the blank. We wouldn't have to worry as much about that. Mm -hmm. And uh, the pushback that you get sort of makes sense. If you picture a person that's floundering around in the middle of a raging river, a heavy current, they're in a heightened state that you're not expecting. If you don't know, <laughs> like nowadays, I just go and I'm, I'm somewhat quiet. I pick my battles and I don't always wait out there to have a, a chat with someone, which now when you have that river metaphor, it sort of makes sense, more sense to me why, uh, you know, somebody's all ready to do battle sometimes. Then that, that's, that's a good perspective to have. I think when I'm ready to tussle with people, I, I ask them to do one thing. And that one thing is to educate yourself. Because we live in a world where with all the social media that we're bombarded with all the time that we feel either compelled to get off of or compelled to either peek into or some people are wait, you know, I mean, we or everybody runs that gamut. And has that sort of tug of war of what what is the right amount of social media to get to. But basically what it says is I can have an opinion, but I don't have to have anything to back up that opinion with. Mm -hmm. And I have a friend, I have a good friend who says only adults get to come to the table. And what that means is an adult has done their homework. They have a foundation for which they base their opinion. And I, I've invited a lot of people to challenge me, but they have to come from a basis of evidence, not a basis of wishful thinking. It has to obey the law of physics, all the things that we have to obey. And then we can have that conversation. You're such a downer. Obey the laws of physics. <laughs> I mean, I've got six That's or seven right. arguments that are going to completely fall on their face now. Just with that one <laughs> right. rule. One, it has to, you know, you can... Like I think when pigs fly, we'll have that conversation. But until we, until you want to come to the table with your books of science and reason and compassion, then we can do it. Because the only reason to care about this issue is because you care about humanity, you care about wildlife, and you care about the systems that support both. Because if you don't care, then just stop because we're doing a really good job of wrecking it. So to get involved, to get your hands dirty on this issue is to care about the planet. And that's what I've been, that's the, the, the pedestal or soapbox that I've been standing on a long time is to defy those people who say, I don't care. It's really strange to be a species that can step outside 
so to speak, sort of try to be objective, aware of their presence, aware of their activities, do all of the things that we have done, very unlike any other species on the planet, then decide that we are exceptional and that we are radically different, almost as if we didn't come out of the same dirt that everything else did. And now we're not completely and totally and utterly tied to this rock and no other on the, on, in the universe. There's no other place for us to live. Even if it had air, the gravity would be different. There would be a billion things that would rip us apart. We belong here. This is our, and we know that as a species, we know that. And, but we, on certain issues like population, we cannot rip ourselves away from the more amygdalic response to our biology. In my book, um, WWJD is a, is a chapter. It's called, What Would Jesus Do? And it's all about monotheism and how it has sold us a story that we are special, that we are different, created on the last day of creation, and we are created in God's image. And regardless if you're a pious person or not, a pious person actually goes through ritualized practice. You may never attend church, but that story is so deeply ingrained inside of us that anything that says there can be too many people goes against the story that we've been told since we were little kids in Sunday school or Saturday school or whatever school you're in. And so what we're fighting against isn't rational. It's a story. It's, you know, I, I, and for my new book, which is called where do old stories go to die? What I, what I talk about is the fact that for 200,000 years, humans have been in their current form on the planet for about 189,000 years we communicated via story, standing around the campfire, elders, there was no written language. There was just story. Baked into our DNA is this way we listen to truth, our truth. It's the story that we go by, the story that we live. So when science comes out with this ever-changing story that says, you know what, wear a mask, don't wear a mask. You know, the story is always changing based on new evidence. Well, that's not what we're genetically predisposed to listen to. We're predisposed to listen to the, our elders, which in many cases are a pastor on Sunday morning, a rabbi on Saturday morning. Uh, you know, if somebody in our mosque is going to tell us this is how to think, oh, okay, that I know because someone's telling it to me. They're part of my tribe. These scientists, yeah, they're probably right and they mean well, but no, I'm going to really just keep buying into the story that I, I've known kind of in my cellular level for so long. And so what we're really up against, I think, is the tremendous effort it's going to take to change our relationship to the earth because we've been lied to for so long. The only people I think who've really gotten it right have been indigenous people who are much closer, might have a much closer tie to the earth and its cycles. That is another neat new way of looking at all of this, that long history of stories that never change versus those darn scientists who change theirs constantly due to the fact that they have more evidence. And that that is an aggravating thing to people makes a lot more sense since we did 189,000 years of that versus this. But also, I just hate to think of humanity being that simple. It, it's disappointing to me. <laughs> it, there are things that you don't want to know. 
sometimes. And like social media, you talked about that earlier. We've really exposed ourselves in a lot of ways where I'm thinking, I didn't want to know this about us. <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I like to sort of spin things in the most positive light I can, not because in any way I think being a Pollyanna or being an optimist is, is always helpful. I mean, sometimes really opening up the wound is really where we need to go. But uh, the most positive discovery, if that is a discovery, other people have said it long before me, Joseph Campbell and others who, who have written about the importance of story, is that we just need to be telling better stories. And then we need to be, you know, look what we've done to the arts in our culture. When the artists, I think, have a tremendous power over us, someone can see a play or a film and go, wow, I didn't know slavery was that bad <laughs> or something, you know? Mm. I mean, the history books are full of stories that tell the truth, but the minute you see an art form or a better a storyteller telling it, you can hear it better. You know, look at the popularity yeah. of Hamilton. Why did that resonate so well with so many people? We took a modern day hip hop, you know, art form and blended it with a historical person. Now we want to listen. So I, there are a lot of people trying to do this, but I think scientists might want to do more with their knowledge than just keep putting out reports. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. I think this is a truth that people can feel in their gut. We have to find a way to work more with poets and artists and musicians and, and um, storytellers. That it's kind of occurring to me that a lot of people were coming at that angle toward me, and I didn't really fully realize it until today when you talked about the long history of all of this, and it's sort of starting to come together. We're we're in such a fast moving stream that when a study comes out, we all kind of knee jerk go, people should just understand this if I just share it. They should just because I mean, look at this. The data is all here. It's it's extraordinarily believable because it's so easily proven. It's done. The work is done. Why do we have to dress this up? Let's just go share it. I had a very small high school class, Golden Valley, Minnesota. Shout out to the class of seventy-two, one hundred and fourteen of us, and mm. it was a good to be part of a small, mostly college prep high school because there was definitely the people who were the nerdy people, just like there are today, and there were people who were the popular group. I mean, we all had the groups, but there were people who did really well in science and people did really well in art and people did really well in poetry. And it took a whole series of staff and subject matter to inspire them all. Science has relied on just one narrow band of truth telling that a lot of people don't really connect to. If you remember the kids falling asleep or throwing spitballs mm -hmm. in the back of a high school um, classroom, they might get jazzed about, you know, an art class or jewelry making or something, but they're just going to go, oh, no, I don't want to sit through chemistry. 
some people in chemistry go, oh, what a waste of time to do art. So if we could move out of just the pure science, um, I think we could do that well. I, I tried to do that, and I, I ran a nature center for 28 years, and we tried many different ways of bringing art and music and dance into nature so that we could sort of touch that part of our brain that wasn't just always, what is it, the left side that that gets stimulated by data. A local artist who was quite concerned about overpopulation sought me out, and John Sherman is his name and a good friend now. He said, I want to do an art installation with overpopulation as a topic. Are you in? And I was like, Yeah. You had you had me at hello. <laughs> and so what I came up with was something called the goose, the deer, and the mirror. And being that I work at a nature center, of course, we're like the Adams family. We have dead things everywhere. And um <laughs> I had a I had a head of a deer and I had a stuffed goose and I had a mirror. And I put up one sign underneath the mirror. As you looked into it, you could see the goose and you could see the deer. And it said, we all operate by the same rules. Mm. And that was it. So you had to go, like, what do we have in common with geese and deer? Well, it doesn't take you much to say there's too many geese. We have like 25,000 in the metro area. And a professor at the university decided it would be great to clip their wings and put them at my nature center in the 70s. <laughs> and now we have too many geese and, and deer for many reasons. Um of fragmented nature, there's too many, and but say too many people, and oh, no, you can't do that. So I was trying to use art to try to get that message across. We also had a metronome, you know, from music clicking at the rate of additional passengers on the planet, just in the, in the corner of the room ticking for a, for a kind of an auditory kind of a thing. Nice. So I have experimented with different ways of waking up people to this really huge disaster we are living and experiencing without acknowledging. I have a fantasy about what's going on right now, and it, it revolves mm -hmm. around the time that people have to think right now. Because the excuse before mm -hmm. was, I'm too busy, I got to think about groceries and my kids and, and this and that. I mean, just all these different excuses that we always had, and the people didn't ever say it outright. But the time to talk about conservation was always put behind all of these other things. And here we are having to take this pause. And I just fantasize people are out there reading and learning. And, and I do see a lot of people remarking on the very easy stuff, the pollution, the map over China where the, there was pollution and then this happened and there's not. And, you know, how much do you think that's capturing people's imagination? Do you think the population stuff is maybe even getting through a little bit more now that we're taking this pause? That's funny you said that because I just wrote a piece um, that I haven't uh, polished yet and put it out there yet, but it's called, it's hard to socially distance in an overpopulated world. <laughs> and what I, what I've been able to see much more clearly, and I've been working on this for over 25 years is how evident it is that, that what a trap overpopulation is especially now that we realize how these droplets jump from one person to another and how our most densely populated areas are the most vulnerable to the spread of disease. So now when you say, oh, just stay at home, you're basically saying, 
oh, how do I do that? I, I know people who've had to go down an elevator to, to walk their dog and they're afraid of being in the, in the elevator. You know, it's, 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 we've decided that density is our answer for accommodating people and it isn't the answer at all. And so I think you're right that we have an opportunity here if we get the right messaging across to open people's eyes because they're going, oh, well, just go to the countryside. Well, how do you go to the countryside when you've got so many millions and millions of people already here? There is no countryside left. Yeah, and what does and, that even mean? And, and out east here, right. that's not as easily said. When I lived in Albuquerque, that's pretty quick. You could be out in some public land that you know you're allowed to be in. And uh, that's not so in the Midwest and in the other densely populated parts of the country. It's, it's just not something you can say. And, and for people like me to not just chuckle, like, yeah, right, you can't do that. So it seems like this theme of density is going to be sticking around for a while. And, and, and we have to be careful not to look at people as poison, but we also have to let go of our idea that density is a solution. solution for anything, really. I mean, maybe it's a way to get more people in your particular industry. Um, there are some benefits, uh, to be sure, um, if, you, if you're going to have a theater, it's kind of nice to be able to fill the seats with people. I mean, there's, there's certainly benefits to, you know, the more and the more ethnicities, the better restaurants, all those things are, are nice. But I come at it from a resource perspective, and you're asking all those people to depend on one water resource, whether it's an aquifer or a river, you're asking them to drain that in one location because overpopulation is is a very locally applied issue. No matter what you and I do today, it'd be very hard for us to solve any water problems that are happening on the other side of the globe. But but we can do things in our local neighborhood and say, we don't want that development here. So sometimes you have to grapple with things that you get labeled so quickly as someone who hates people. But as I said at the beginning, no, no, no. This is about bringing the relationship between what the nature can provide and what we demand from her. And when you bring it back upstream, then people can relax and say, yeah. So to answer your question, I think that this is a tremendous opportunity because from all the harping I've been doing and my colleagues have been doing, we haven't been able to shut down the airlines. We haven't been able to, to, to make the traffic stop. So we're all just watching what's happening. And I think a lot of people are having conversations around, you know, some of the things that, you know, you've been noticing, I've been noticing and wondering how it's all going to turn out. And, and the irony of it being that it wasn't anyone's doing it was just um, another unfolding event on the planet that none of us had any control over. Once your population gets really crazy, um, some crazy things can happen like this. Well, I think we can realize that we are responsive to, to things happening now rather than that might happen in the future. You know, it's, it's like saying, you know, I know that that fried food is bad for me and it might create Maybe I'm going to have to have an artery redone or have a heart attack early, but God, it tastes so good right now. 
the, 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 the virus is like, no, it's arsenic and it's going to kill you and your relatives will be writing your obituary tomorrow. So, okay, I'll do something. And I think so. We, we are pretty much wired for an immediate response. I mean, look at Pearl Harbor versus people saying, hey, look what's going on in Hitler's Europe. But not until Pearl Harbor hit did we mobilize and enter the war. And so we're really culturally predisposed to not responding to the slow or slower warnings of scientists we're much more responsive to a nasty virus that we don't know how to cure. But we are so wired to work on now. What's around that bush? What's around that corner? What's what's getting we ready are. to happen? And I don't know how you get people to think into the future. We haven't yet. You know, present evidence is that we have failed at that, given that we're just breeding away. And as if we're not on a finite planet and all of those things that we've always said exist. And this thing did end up stopping us or pausing us a little bit. It's so crazy to think about what might we might bring forward out of this and what we might leave in the past. Right, right. No, I, I think one of the things it's doing is it's a giant mirror. And we have to look deeply into that mirror and say, how did we get to the place where we have these wet markets of wildlife, which is having a horrible time surviving as it is. I mean, part of it is culture when people have to buy things that say, hey, look, at, I'm, I have status because I can afford this exotic, exotic animal. Some of it is just need. Overpopulation breeds a lot of like, oh, I better eat that because I'm hungry. And, and just to look in deeply into that mirror and say, how did we get here? And what am I willing to do to change? Because this is really uncomfortable. And so some of the uncomfortable places we're in, it's probably a good thing. People can't do what they have been becoming used to, hopping on a plane whenever they want or, or driving a car as far as they want or all those things. And so that reflection in that COVID mirror is probably a good thing. I just wish that right now, today, we could get every environmental organization to put a world population clock on their website. Why would that hurt? What would that do that would be so terrible? I think it would be wonderful. In fact, a long time ago, there was a Living Green Expo in the Twin Cities that was at our state fairgrounds. And I proposed that in addition to all of the, you know, incandescent fluorescent light bulbs and the cloth bags and the, and the CSAs that they were trying to sell, that they have a, a computer at the front of the, and at the entrance and say, guess what the world population is going to be when you exit. And if you do, you get something, I don't know, bar of soap or whatever. And and they didn't, they didn't want to do that. I said, because you have to frame it. And then no matter what you did during that, that expo, no matter how many talks you listened to, or no matter how many light bulbs you purchased, the world was going to gain 10,000 people net gain during that time. You know, I wish that people would really just speak in terms of numbers. If sustainable population in the United States, which Global Footprint Network puts at about 150 million, so that we can still maintain some, uh, you know, water recharge and all the things that we need to survive, and we're at 327 million, 
wouldn't that reframe a lot of our immigration policy just based on sustainability alone? It should. When I'm, if I travel, I, I try to find a person who's native to that state and ask them what their state's population is. And, and pretty much nobody knows what their own state's population is. And that's critical in a state like Florida, which adds a quarter of a million people every two years. It's critical in the time of COVID. Do you want to be in a, in a state that has 21 million people like Florida does or 6 million people like Minnesota does? When, when it comes time to maybe having to be treated for some kind of a pandemic. But people don't have those numbers in their fingertips. Just from a number standpoint, I think a lot of logical people would say, that doesn't make any sense. It's not about not liking people. It's not about who people are. It's about the numbers, the numbers of people, especially because we're at such a high rate of consumption is something we should be paying attention to through the eyes of compassion. I feel like I'm on a real tightrope here, but it's a tightrope we have to walk. Yeah, because we have to do we have to do both the midstream and upstream stuff. I mean, wouldn't upstream be, you know, turning the tap off at the source? And and right. and, and and further downstream, is it true that that that's where you start dealing with immigration, where all this population moves around the planet? Population has to be dealt with, like Garrett Hardin um, said, it has to be dealt with, like potholes are dealt with. You know, everybody has potholes around the world if they have pavement, but you can't pass a universal pothole rule. You have to deal with it all locally, and you have to deal with with what you have here, the laws you have, the jurisdictions that you have. And so how many people still have in their head the idea that the United States can be the, the, the end game for the huddled masses that are always going to be hurting and wanting to have shelter? It's, it's this sort of endless mythology in a finite world. And that's, that's the new story we have to tell, is we're full. We're over full. And very few people want to hear that because what do they have to do? They have to stop believing in the mythology that the America, the beautiful, the song is written. I, d- I did a little research. Do you know when that song was written, Jack? No. It, it was written in... Um, Kathleen or Catherine Bateman back in 1893, back when we had 63 million people in the United States. No wonder she said, oh, beautiful for spacious skies. I'll do all of your listeners a favor and not sing that. But basically, her, she conceptualized America for us in that song. And now it's sung at all major events, which we can't have right now because of the virus. But but. Think of think of that. Oh, beautiful for spacious eyes, for amber ways of grain, for purple mountains, majesty above a fruit plain. That was all true in 1893. It's now 2020, and we have a 327 million and growing population. There are no more spacious skies. The fruited plain is full of development and fracking and all the kinds of things that are antithetical to that story. And yet it's still part of who we are. And so I would just like those numbers to be more forthcoming on every environmental group's website 
that we all have to give each other a nod for what our mission is. But I don't think any one of us can accomplish our mission until overpopulation is honestly addressed. Agreed. And rewilding agrees. And I know you do. That's why we, you know, have that statement on our site. It's a difficult one to put there because in these times, you know, that to answer the question why everybody doesn't have a counter on their site, well, it's a it's a political thing. It's a funding thing, and it's really sad because uh, yeah. We don't have a lot to lose because we're such a tiny organization, but other organizations at least feel like they do. If they take any kind of a stance on population that puts them in in jeopardy uh, with people who believe in the little things that go around the internet. I mean, what we're up against is the stupid little meme that everybody in the world could fit in the space of Texas. And as dumb and idiotic as that sounds to people who know anything at all, people glom on to that stupid stuff. So so next time I have a chance, Jack, you know what I'm going to do? I wish I were a cartoonist. God, that would be so great. I don't have that skill set. I know some people who are, though. I would like to have a cupboard filled with mice. And I would say, that's true. We could all fit into Texas. And I could fit a thousand mice in my cupboard. The next day they wouldn't be alive because there'd be no food and water. But you're right. I could fit them in there. And just let it die there. You know, just make the analogy, acknowledge that they're correct. They are correct. We could fit in there. We couldn't live there. We couldn't survive there. But what's your point? There's there's no point here. This is a distraction. Look, nobody wants to live in a world where we're afraid to go to the grocery store or look our neighbors in the eye. But Maybe we're the kind of species that needs this in order to wake up and smell the coffee we've been brewing for a really long time. Yeah. And I'm just very um, encouraged by the fact that, you know, no one's put a target on my back yet. My tires aren't slashed yet. Maybe people don't know enough about me yet. But what I hope they're hearing is how deeply in love I am with this planet and its ability to support some of us. It can't support an unending demand of us, which means we'll all suffer. And that's what we're trying to prevent is the chaos, the suffering, the early deaths that happens when you demand too much from a planet that was never meant to support that many of us, especially industrialized humans. No one was ever accused of disliking and and being against humanity more than some of the people who are so caring and that everything that they do is to the benefit of humanity. It's really discouraging to see somebody know that's where their heart is and watch them be attacked for being exactly the antithesis of it when it's, when it's, and it's not true and people buying that because it's like (laughs) everything we do is for the benefit of everything, life, biology, not just humans or other species, but everything here. And I don't, I've never understood how people couldn't see that. I've been a myth buster my whole life. I mean, the, the idea that bats fly into your hair. No, they don't. The idea that mosquitoes are the worst thing. Well, they actually pollinate blueberries. Really? So, you know, the, the mythology, um, I, used, I did a program when I was getting my doctorate um, at the University of St. Thomas. I actually brought a real snake to my classroom. I, I can't believe they let me graduate. Um, but what, the reason I did is because I was um, talking about story back then. And I said, 
in this bag is an animal that's beneficial to humanity and to everything in the food chain. But it's going to take me an hour and a half to convince you of that. If I just said there's a man-eating snake in this bag, you'd believe me in a second. And that is the difference between the different stories that we tell, is it's easier to tell the fearful story and it's harder to tell the compassionate story or how it fits in. And people look for buzzwords too. The buzzword overpopulation just brings up all kinds of things for people, whether it's abortion or you hate, you know, like, oh, here we go. <laughs> you know, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, in fact, when I, when I do my talks, and I, you can see this on one of my um, tapes that I did for CGTN TV, I just show my arms and I say, okay, here's what's happening with the Earth's resources. And I show one arm going down and here's what's happening with our population. And in between, you have misery, suffering, and early death. Hmm. How do we prevent that? Well, we can try making more resources, but that's just going to make the curve go up. We have to get back to a sustainable population. And that's my motivation. And if you can't hear that, then come back when you're an adult and we'll have a conversation. That's kind of where I, where I come from. You can find out more about Karen at movingupstream.com. And Karen, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I really enjoyed this. I, this is not the way I thought the conversation would go. There wasn't as much hand-wringing as there has been in the past on our own conversations around population. It was more hopeful and relaxing and, and um, enlightening than typical conversations. Like I hope that's what people get from this. And thank you so much. Oh, for I do too. And, and thank you. And thank Give my, my best to everybody at Rewilding. I appreciate the work you guys do. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.